Hello, and welcome to The Reconstruction, a show about moving capital toward justice. I'm Monique Aiken, Managing Director of the Investment Integration Project and Contributing Editor at Impact Alpha. In this series of conversations, I'll be exploring the opportunity for systemic change in this current moment, lifting up the leaders, problem solvers, and bright minds, both in the U.S. and around the world, who can guide us to the next normal we need. We're joined today by Lori Chapman from Enterprise, a 40-year-old CDFI with a track record of positive change-making that has impacted millions of lives through the deployment of $61 billion and countless hours of advocacy, advisory, and collaboration in its history. Lori Chapman is president of the Enterprise Community Loan Fund. Lori serves as a board member of Appalachian Community Capital, a 17-member CDFI committed to meeting the credit needs of rural Appalachia, and the Baltimore Neighborhood Investment Fund, as well as City First Enterprise, a community development bank in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Reconstruction, Lori. Thank you, Monique. So let's begin with the most basic level and dig deeper from there. So I understand that your goal with Equitable Path Forward is to dismantle the legacy of racism in housing. (laughs) This is a very noble goal. Do tell us more. Sure. And I think the first place I want to start is just to kind of give a little context um, for the part of the business that I run of a family of companies uh, that's Enterprise Community Partners. And to understand our equitable path forward, it is helpful to have an understanding of our work overall. So Enterprise Community Partners is the only national nonprofit that addresses America's affordable housing crisis literally from every angle at truly a systems level. We have nearly 40 years of experience listening to our communities and supporting them in building the futures they envision for themselves. So we develop and deploy programs and support community organizations on the ground. We advocate for policy on a nonpartisan basis, literally at every level of government, so both locally uh, at the state level and then federally. We invest capital to build and preserve rental homes um, for people uh, that people can afford. And we own and operate 13,000 affordable homes and provide resident services for over 22,000 people. And then finally, we operate at a national scale uh, with offices in 11 uh, cities around the country. So our Equitable Path Forward initiative at $3.5 billion is in fact a nationwide initiative that's focused on dismantling the legacy of racism in housing. Uh, And that means for us, what gets built, what homes get built, where they're built and who builds them, and then even more importantly, who profits from that. So that's that's kind of the, the thrust of what EPF is. And how are we going to attack that? We look at it as three main pillars of it uh, in terms of filling the capital gap for Black, Indigenous, and people of color developers um, and led organizations that are working in communities uh, and who, quite frankly, um, have suffered in a variety of ways uh, from systemic racism. Um, we're offering advisory services and support. Hopefully what you heard in that is not only do we provide financing, but we're also a practitioner. So how do we lend and share what we learn uh, as a developer and an owner uh, with others who are uh, in this space and doing this work? And then we are looking to partner with uh, others on creating career pathways to help diversify the leadership in real estate overall. It's such a powerful initiative. So what drove the thinking behind the need for it and how did it come together? Yeah, so so Enterprise's work is really rooted in systems change. 
Um, and when you take a look at what real estate and housing finance looks like, Black Americans make up nearly 50% of the people living in affordable homes financed by the federal government. Yet, uh, and these are statistics that, you know, I know that you've probably heard before, only 2% of development companies are Black-led and just 1.5% of real estate assets under management are controlled by minority development firms. And for me, where this initiative really got started was in 2019, uh, I intended the annual conference of what's called SPARC, right? So SPARC stands for Strong, Prosperous, and Resilient Communities. And it's an initiative that Enterprise and a couple of other national partners um, started, and its purpose is to support local efforts uh, and make sure communities have a voice at the table regarding really the trillions of dollars of public and private funding that will fuel new investments in infrastructure, transit, housing, health, um, and quite frankly, begin to prepare communities uh, for uh, the inevitability of climate change. And so for, for us, um, or for me, attending that uh, and listening to the folks at the table who were largely um, people of color, it really helped understand that their voice had to be at the table in order to create the kinds of communities where they want to live. And we play a part in that as both an aggregator of capital as well as an investor uh, in community redevelopment. And what are the ways that this project and the Equitable Path Forward plan grapples with risk and perceptions of risk, which we often view as sort of an objective measure, but as we all know, risk is actually relative, cultural, and reflects the values of the assessor. So what do you what have you all come up with with respect to that? Yeah, part of of of, of how we're getting to the heart of this um, and the issues around um, you know the ongoing problematic conceptions of risk that prevail in the world of real estate financing. Um, and then ultimately uh, continues to shut out certain developers and opportunities and their ability to grow is really about how we look at balance sheets uh, and how we've conceived what strength looks like um, in terms of balance sheets, how we look at track record and what track record we are evaluating overall. And then we select development partners as investors based upon that. Uh, and and I've been in this work for more years than I care to count. And what I've learned in that time is that managing risk, uh, one of the factors that continues to be overlooked and underestimated, quite frankly, uh, particularly in the community development space, is longevity. Um, and, and despite uh, the deeply entrenched disparities in the real estate sector specifically, um, in terms of how capital is available, we continue to ignore that. It's not built into anybody's algorithm how to underwrite that, that connection to community, the trust and the partnership. And when I look at that, right, for organizations that, again, are systematically denied uh, capital and funding, right? So capital we think of as what folks invest in, but then funding in terms of how philanthropy supports the work uh, of these particular communities. And despite that, they're still there, they're still doing important work, and they are having impact on folks' lives. That's a value proposition that I think is even more important than what shows up on you know, an income statement and a balance sheet. 
So it's it's stepping back to include that, right? You can ignore those things, but to include that to be able to say, how do we work with this community, with this developer, be they a nonprofit or for-profit? And I think that that's one of the interesting factors here is that um, this lack of access to capital is not specific to just those who are on the for-profit side of the table. Our nonprofits that are that are black-led, minority-led, uh, you know, however you want to frame it, are also consistently um, deprived of of capital and funding to be able to scale uh, and do their work, despite the fact that they can consistently demonstrate um, incredible outcomes, right, uh, and impact as a result of that. So, so for me, it's saying risk relative to what, and how do we take into account uh, a lot of those other connections to community um, in a way that is mindful of the fact that um, that that there are other things at play, simply uh, other than just money. And actually, one of the other interesting factors for me as I learn more about this effort is the team behind it. And it's no accident that there are three incredible women of color leading the work uh, at Enterprise, which is remarkable in and of itself. And then there's this your story and and the story of Lori and how you got to where you are in this field. And you mentioned the years that you don't want to count, but they all count. And the, that wisdom, I, I think, is borne out in the way that you've been so thoughtful around this program. So can you tell us a little bit about you and the team behind this really incredible initiative? Yeah. So right now, um, I'm excited by all of that we see in terms of, of quite honestly, women of color showing up in leadership roles, um, starting with our very own vice president, right, when we think about that. But at Enterprise, um, the organization itself is led by a woman of color, uh, and then uh, part of our capital division under which uh, reports to me, woman of color, and then uh, the, the person who leads our programmatic and policy work is also a woman of color. And so for me coming to this work, it really started very early in my career, right? I, like most folks, graduated from college, went to, um, you know, what would be thought of at the time as a large regional, now part of a bulge bracket bank. And and in that experience, right, that two-year rotation program, um, and when I was starting to come out of that, the appreciation that I began to see for how literally capital is a commodity uh, in and of itself just wasn't aligned with with where I wanted to go. Um, and, and so I made a transition uh, into what are now called um, community development financial institutions or CDFIs. And as I started to get my footing and took my very first kind of trip, I'll never forget, I went to visit a um, community health center uh, in Indianapolis. It was located in a community that was uh, largely, you know, garden-style apartments that you could tell were um, not lovingly cared for. And as a result of that, the community health center also was a place that, that you know, honestly, the way that I, that I felt then at the time was, and I said this literally to my colleague, I don't know that I could bring my dog here for care because it certainly didn't look like a place where I had grown up getting care, which was nothing fancy, um, but it was it was a place where I knew that I would be cared for and loved. And that was where I, my passion for this work really started, 
in terms of really being able to to partner with communities to be able to to show them that the world cares about where you live, what the quality of that housing is, how that impacts your health and the outcomes that you want for you and your children. And that's what the work of enterprise is about and the work, quite frankly, that I've committed my life to. It's an incredible. And as you think about the change in practice to deliver that more loving care, that, that is thoughtful, um, you know, you all dug deep into your own methodologies and, and really interrogated that closely to be able to deliver on this vision. So what are some of these specific changes that you've made in your practice to be able to live up to this you know, new way of doing your work? Yeah, we, we challenged ourselves. I said to my team, I said, look, let's go back and look at um, at our underwriting, quite frankly, our, our risk models and, and what we consider folks need to have um, as a minimum to be able to access our capital sources. And let's begin to think about and apply kind of an equity lens to that um, and, and see what we can be doing differently. And then what, again, are those factors we are not accounting for when we're assessing that risk? So we did that across every capital source that we make available within enterprise. And so that includes the early stage capital that we provide. It includes our housing equity um, that we provide, both in terms of subsidized equity using um, low-income housing tax credits, as well as our private equity, uh, because we have a real estate equity fund, uh, and said and challenged ourselves to say, how do we, again, how are we as enterprise um, complicit, if you will, in, in again, the systematic uh, kind of denial of the ability for developers, not necessarily to participate, but for certainly in order for them to gain economic mobility. And by that, I mean, so what you'd often find is that um, communities um, and developers in that community have spent years, for example, working with state, local government and other parties um, with a vision for that community Ultimately, they get to a point where all the boxes are checked, they get sign off and they get, you know, for example, master developer rights. But then they come to get financing and what shows up is, well, wait a second, right? You know, you, you don't have enough liquidity or you don't have enough of a balance sheet. So in order to get this deal done, you need to go partner, right, with, with this other firm that's larger, that's bigger, that you know, supposedly has, again, the ability to stand behind the risk, but there's a cost for that, right? And so the the extractive nature of our forcing that partnership continues to kind of perpetuate um, the, the inability uh, of these developer partners, be they, again, for-profit or non-profit, to really um, realize the benefit of the 10 years you know, or whatever it's taken them to get to that point. And then suddenly all of the, again, for lack of a better word, profits associated with that, that that I know for these developers are going to reinvest in that community in a real way, they leave. They leave because you've had to pay handsomely for the balance sheet of, you know, the JV partner that, that we forced you to enter in with. So as we know, any steps towards progress often are met with resistance. Was there any internally or in the field as you guys socialized this with others and people saw what you were doing and changing and perhaps felt some pressure? Um, what, what's been the that kind of response? 
Yeah. So internally, no. Um, It's interesting because, again, you know, we were at a point where we were looking at our 2020 to 2025 strategic plan um, in that plan before all of the events, quite frankly, of 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 this time last year, or, or should I say more May of last, late May of last year occurred, we had already committed that we needed to apply an equity lens in everything that we do. So organizationally, we knew that we needed to do something. Um, and uh, part of the challenge to, to us as an organization is how are we, what are we going to make as our um, signature initiatives under the pillars of our plan of advancing racial equity, increasing housing supply, and helping to build resilience and mobility uh, in communities. So EPF takes our equitable path forward, touches on each one of those. And so we got very early um, and full buy-in from not only the, the organization, but also from our board. And then as we began to go out and talk with kind of the partners who we've worked with for many years um, to both aggregate capital and invest capital on their behalf, they also embraced it. And what they embraced is the fact that we as an organization had both the history um, and the competencies to execute on this in a way um, that, again, was mindful of all the things that they need to balance internally, but also to wrap around uh, with those communities because Projects have hiccups, deals have hiccups. Uh, And as an organization, they could entrust that we would be there and stay committed to get to the other side of that and ultimately what that community envisioned. So it's been it's been widely supported, again, by our board within our organization. Um, I have to mention that, you know, another commitment to this, uh, quite frankly, we just had an announcement with um, with Bank of America and they've come in with a $60 million commitment uh, for for equitable path forward uh, in terms of supporting certain developers. And there are many others who've also done the same. And I don't know if you, you know, how okay it is to to put names out there, but Northern Trust, another significant partner, the Siemens Foundation, an organization that hasn't historically worked in community development, wanted to be a part of this as well. Um, And so we're, we're, in ongoing conversations. So it's been well-received because part of it is, I feel like it's been well-crafted in terms of all of those places where right now uh, we're saying that, that, you know, certain types of developers uh, aren't meeting a standard, right? They can't cross a threshold. And so we've wrapped ourselves around that to address each one of those and essentially uh, ease that friction and address those concerns at every level of the development and financing cycle. It's powerful. Um, It's on every level. And that's really, I think, what's needed as we all interrogate our own practices. So kudos to all of you for being willing um, to go that distance. And if you do go this distance, what happens in three, five, 10 years if you get this right? And if others really follow um, your lead in here, yeah. So, you know, three, five, 10 years, what do we have? Uh, you know, we have a place where where capital readily flows um, in a way that that is mindful of the people that live there, um, those who are trying to execute on that vision uh, in a way that that, again, creates 
um, communities that are inclusive, um, that are uh, inclusive in all kinds of ways, right? In terms of the types of people who live there, the types of businesses that locate there, the access to jobs and transportation and clean water, all of those things, right, are are mindful of that. Um, And we think that that's important because, you know, that diverse perspective is at the table when these kinds of decisions are being made and they're not being excluded simply because of a capital issue, right, that is that is built into um, the way that we currently practice and the way that we think. From a policy perspective, um, you know, we need to be thinking about who are or how, um, you know, quite frankly, government financing in a lot of ways plays into this as well, right? So it's not just financial institutions or, or institutional investors, you know, housing finance authorities also have lots of, of um, stated requirements around who can access um, their, their funding and their capital sources as well. So our policy efforts have to be one that force them to look at how, again, they create and perpetuate um, an incumbency preference, right? Um, Real estate is one of the most capital intensive businesses that one can get into. And you, at some point, um, suddenly really create um, a, a bit of a, of a very small group of players um, as you continue to ratchet up what those requirements uh, need to look like, all again in the name of managing um, a perception of risk. So you've obviously been inspired by many to get to this point, and I'm sure look to folks historically and contemporary to really interrogate these practices. So can you share with us some of those folks that you've read, that you look to? You know, and it's it's funny because I don't know that this is going to answer this in a really clean or sweet way. But for me, it's people living in the communities um, who, no matter what, they come back every day um, to do what they can to make that community a better place and better for themselves, not necessarily by the definition of others. Those are the folks that are my inspiration. I think the the other part of that equation that is it's kind of more new for me um, is really the throngs of young people that look like me and say no to the status quo and the token participation and invitations um, are no longer enough. Um, but more importantly, what I really find inspirational about you know this these throngs of young people, if you will, is that they're not waiting to be given permission, they're doing. And for all that I, you know, quite honestly, dislike and find uncomfortable um, and not trustworthy, honestly, of social media, I do think it has become a very powerful tool for collective action and affirmation. And I know that that cuts both ways, um, but the power of it for good is tremendous. Um, and and that's what I see in and a lot of young people is how do we use that um, to to help each other, quite frankly, see how we can take a different role uh, in in, de- in deciding what's happening in our communities and who, quite frankly, gets to benefit from that. So what is one characteristic of this next normal that will be inspired by these young people and others that you just talked about that we must have? if we are going to be successful in this journey of moving capital towards justice? 
I don't know if it's necessarily going to be inspired by young people or is that that I'm hopeful. And for me, it really is. Um, and I know I don't I don't mean this literally, but but it's it's blindness. Right. And by that, I mean that it's not without regard to who, you know, our cultural identity or our, our, our ethnicity, but really to to how the practice of race really plays into everything that we're doing. So I, I would, you know, uh, uh, I had an opportunity to listen to a few of your other podcasts and it just struck me um, in your conversation with Darren Dodson, for example, uh, and how, you know, he laid out something that, that was like even shocking, but then was reaffirmed in something else I was looking at the other day. And basically where he shared that, um, the research, uh, helped him in the way that I listened, um, understand his experience even, you know, in a much more deep and profound way when he talked about how portfolio managers were literally willing to suspend their reliance on kind of the modern portfolio theory that they normally relied upon simply because the asset manager was black. Right. And so, how do you, it, when you take that out of the equation, what power could we really have in terms of all the things right now that we identify um, as societal challenges um, and, and norms that are, that are not norms that inure to the benefit of everyone, right? It took me to, you know, I, I was watching, um, so I've taken a liking to a, a show that that it's called New Amsterdam, and I like it because every episode has a social commentary. And on a very recent episode, and this again goes to suspending what we've now created, uh, for lack of a better word, in terms of algorithms to make decisions, right? And built into those is race. And so this particular episode was about four women three of whom were black. They were all ready to give birth. And there was one woman who had previously had a cesarean section, but she wanted to give, uh, she wanted a natural birth for her, for this particular pregnancy. And, you know, the algorithm came back and told doctors, absolutely not. She needed to have another cesarean section. And she advocated for herself um, to where the head of the hospital had to say to the doctor in this episode, change her race to white in that algorithm, literally change it to white. And when it came back, it was like, oh, sure, she could have more time to labor, right? And provide for that opportunity for a natural birth. But literally it was changing her race that allowed that to happen. How do we take that element out of all of the things now that we, you know, in my opinion, lazily lie, rely upon to be able to make decisions fast. So it, it, it is it is blindness, and I want to say race blindness, but that sounds too simplistic. And 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 I think it because of again the practice of race in this country allows people to say because I say it when people say, "Well, I'm race blind." I'm like, "Well, you don't see me. What I want you to see is my cultural identity and my ethnicity, not the color of my skin." Yes, and yes, and actually that was a quite nuanced understanding of the way that, you know, folks obviously use blindness differently and as potentially wielded against 
us as people of color. And I think what's so fascinating about when you flip the switch on who's in your algorithm, and if it changes the outcome, then you know this is actually problematic. And multiply that not just to health, <laughs> the rest of the whole system. It's it's an extremely powerful example. Exactly. So, it, and again, it's it, it's that blindness again, as you said, not just to health, but to capital, to education, to climate, to water, right, to all of those things, and the outcomes change. And again, I think the thing that's less appreciated is it. It's not just the change for that for that one person. It's a societal change that actually makes us all healthier, stronger, better, happier, all of those things um, in a very real way. And if we get it right, and using that imagery, you know, each one of us, if it changes for us, we flip that algorithm to make it better for one, and we flip the algorithm, we make it better for all. And as we think about what do we do now to make it better for all, you know, the words of Adrienne Marie Brown always echo in my mind, and I talk about her all the time in this book. We're living in the ancestral imagination of others. In order to create a new imagination, what do we need to do now that is this new imagination in order for our children and our children's children and beyond to have that more thriving, that the opportunity to thrive? You know, and it's it's funny because I, I, I've been thinking about that and thinking about that, and it, it just, it keeps coming back to... Um, for, for me, it keeps coming back to what am I doing? How am I talking to my children um, a, a, about the fact that when you take out of the equation your preconceived notions, anything can happen. And so how do we begin to condition our children early on? to be able to see that, right? That, that it, it is, and, and it, when I sum it down to, you know, one word, it's the way that I think about when people talk about, you know, folks who choose to, how do I say it? it, it and I, I don't want to use this word, but, but, you know, in America, we also have people who's, who have no hope, who don't see hope, who don't see themselves in tomorrow. And as a result of that, they make decisions, right, that are rooted in hopelessness. And therefore, um, those decisions often have uh, consequences for their lives, but also the lives of others. So how do we create that dynamic where everybody sees themselves in the future by basically making that picture and every picture show everybody uh, in a way that is... um, that says that this is what makes it all makes us all better. And so it it kind of goes back to the whole notion for me of, you know, again, this, this, this blindness um, to, to all of the things that quite frankly have determined where we are today. I see a bright future for the team at enterprise with you leading the pack and the rest of your team with this equitable path forward. So what else is on the docket for the rest of this year? And thereafter, you mentioned um, a multi-year plan that you have. So what should we expect to see? Yeah. So, I mean, on the docket for the rest of this year is, is again, you know, part of the equitable path forward 
absolutely has to look at climate and resiliency, um, particularly in uh, um, you know communities that are largely uh, inhabited by people of color. Um, and so for us, part of that path forward has to be one where we we begin to think about as we make investments, as they uh, decide what kinds of investments that they want, that we're also bringing in the realities of, of climate change uh, and those other environmental factors that contribute to um, the disparate outcomes for the people who live there. So that's another major body of work um, for us. Uh, and, and, and it's not only as we think about it for the future, it is right now, the imperative is now, because every time there's a disaster, right, who's, you know, who takes on the brunt of that in a way um, that the recovery never really happens before the next disaster. Um, so it, it, it's incredibly, it's vitally important um, that we get ahead of that and that we start making those investments today. It's been a delight to speak to you today, Lori. And you can learn more about the Equitable Path Forward and the rest of the great work at Enterprise on their website at www.enterprisecommunity.org. The Reconstruction is a project of Impact Alpha. The steering committee includes Erica Seth Davies and Carrie Hanson, with thanks to Dr. Jillian Marcel. We benefited from the wisdom of our brain trust of more than a dozen leaders in the field. To send us your favorite quote or ideas for future guests who you think represent the principles of the reconstruction, email us at tr at impactalpha.com. Impact Alpha's editor is David Bank, and our producer is Isaac Silk. Special thanks to Lainika Little and Cesar Chavez. You can see Impact Alpha's reconstruction coverage at impactalpha.com slash the dash reconstruction and sign up for our mailing list to learn when new episodes are released. The Reconstruction Podcast is free of charge, but it's powered by Impact Alpha subscribers. Join us, impactalpha.com slash subscribe. And today's closing words come from Lori herself. Yes. So I, I want to thank you for, quite frankly, um, this incredible podcast. I'm enjoying it and, and listening to, to lots of things there. And, you know, I'll share with, with, with folks um, as we part one of the things that I I keep um, it's it's something that I heard somewhere that I literally put up on the wall and it's leap and the net will appear. And I say that not just about what you outcomes you look for yourself, but for us as a society. Let's suspend everything and jump into it uh, in a way where the commitment is um, to equitable everything for everyone. Mm-hmm.